Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This podcast is sponsored by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist for at least 25 years. He's been my kid's dentist. He's an expert on Invisalign and uses that technology to improve his patient's smiles and positioning. And earlier this year in 2021, my son Owen finished up a stint on these aligners and he's thrilled with the result and we love it too. We're lucky to have Dr. Sauer's knowledge and experience here in the Texas Panhandle. To learn more, visit shimendental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. Today's guest is Claudia Stewart, who just has had one of those careers that's hard to put into words or capture, even in a 45-minute podcast episode. She was one of the first African-American students to attend WT in the 1960s. And she eventually earned two master's degrees from the university. She taught sociology and criminal justice there for years, and in doing so became the first full-time African-American female faculty member. And just this year, Claudia received the university's Distinguished Alumni Award. She's also an award-winning author and a poet who wrote the book African-Americans in Amarillo, which is a book that I've used as a resource countless times in my writing. So we have a ton to talk about in this episode. Here's Claudia Stewart. Claudia Stewart, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Jason. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. I know that we've been talking about recording this for quite a while, so I'm glad that we finally made it work. Um, and I want to start with you the same way that I start with all of my guests, and that's just to ask you how you ended up in this area in the first place. And so what brought you to the Amarillo Canyon area? Well, it takes me back a number of years um, at school at WT. I came to Canyon in 1967. Okay. And it was on the hills of my brother who came a year before to WT. And he he got here. His journey started when his counselor at Frankfurt American High School in 1966 suggested that since our home state was Texas and his major was psychology, that try this school in Canyon. Hmm. They have a great psychology program. He graduated from Frankfurt American High School, went to WT, and so a year later he just said, come on down, this is fine. Where where was that high school? Frankfurt American, Frankfurt, Germany. Frankfurt, Germany. Yes. So you grew up in Germany? Yes, I grew as... up in Germany as an army dependent. Okay. My dad was in the military, uh, so Brat Nation is part of my, part of my world. Did you spend most of your childhood in Germany? Were I spent you... six years. Okay. Six out of 12. All right. Um, uh, Dad did two tours, once in Stuttgart, and the other one was in Frankfurt. Okay. And it, it, there were three years apiece. Let's talk about that then. What was it like okay. being uh, you know, an, an army kid in Europe during the 60s? Well... 50s and 60s. I mean, that was a turbulent time here in the United States. I imagine it was... There were so many things going on in the United States at that time. In Germany, the Vietnam War was on everybody's lips, and it was pretty much Yankee go home. Um, because they they were opposed to the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and of course all of our fathers were in the war effort. We lived on a on a military base, and uh, went to uh, an American high school in Frankfurt. But the thing that was ideal about my high school was that when De Gaulle kicked the Americans out of France, the military shifted, and all of the students that were going to the, the French schools, I mean the American schools in France, came to Frankfurt American, okay. and so we and we had dorms. 
And so we had people from Turkey, we had people from France, we had people from um, other parts of Germany um, to go to school at, at Frankfurt American High School. So our graduating cl- my graduating class had 500 people. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. And that's what I was accustomed to because when you're, when you're in Frankfurt and you have a dorm, um, for the Army dependents, it was Frankfurt. For the, for the um, Air Force dependents, it was Wiesbaden. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the experience going through your teenage years on an Army base in that environment. I can imagine it's, it's number one, very different from what it might have been like had you been back here. Mm-hmm. Also, that was a time you know, during the middle of, of the civil rights through the 60s. And I, I wonder, like... What are some ways that your experience, as, as you understand it, was different from what it might have been had you been going to high school you know, okay. here in the United States? For middle school, I was in Frankfurt. For the first part of my um, high school, junior high, I was in Germany. When we left the United States, my brother was entering high school. Okay. We were stationed in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I've been a military brat since the age of five. So we were stationed in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I can remember my mother getting getting involved in the movement um, for integration, Um, even then. And, you know, I liken it to when Gone with the Wind, when they were waiting for um, quietly in their sewing circle, waiting for... Um, the character to come back from discussing political things, and it was very, very tense. Yes. It was like that in my family because all my friends who were multicultural, mm-hmm. diverse backgrounds, all my friends were wait- we were waiting at each other's homes while our mothers were out dickering with the school officials in yeah. Fayetteville, North Carolina, about how they were going to split up the military kids for, um, and, and send the, the African-American students to an all, an, another high school, and all of the other students would go to Fayetteville High School, which was all white, and it was segregated. Yeah. At that time, Jason, my mother and more mothers who right now you would probably call them allies. Mm-hmm. They got together and they said, okay, well, our students will not be boarding the buses. So essentially that meant a boycott mm. on a military base. Yeah. North Carolina in the 60s, that was not a good idea. It was not a good idea because the, the military didn't want that much dissension on their bases. And if they had more and more families not wanting to send their kids to the white school because the black Black brothers and sisters wouldn't be able to go. Mm-hmm. That was a problem. Uh, it went all the way up to the president. And what the edict was with Fayetteville Independent School District was, okay, the way we're going to solve the problem, because we need the military base for the economy and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Anytime there's a base in a, in a town, it, it just boosts yeah, everything, such a big right? Part. Exactly. A big part. And so they said, we will, we will accept the African-American students from the from the base to go to Fayetteville High School, but that's it. Nobody, no nobody other else. Nobody that lived in Spring Lake. Nobody uh-huh. lived. None of the blacks that lived in Fayetteville. Well, you know, that was fine for about two or three weeks into the school year, and then the NAACP got involved and filed a a, a lawsuit against the school district because they were discriminating against military versus civilian. Okay. So 
the way they did it was the schools were no longer segregated. Wow. And did that tension, I mean, which I can imagine that just as a kid, you know, when you feel like your parents are doing something conceivably dangerous and all that stuff, like, did, did that follow you into Germany and schooling there? Or was it, was it, it absolutely some? did because, because on the base, you're protected. Mm-hmm. You're protected from the outside sources, outside economy, outside civilian life. So you're pretty much protected on that base with, with, with all the amenities that you would want as a teenager. You know, there was a lot of recreational activities for families, mm-hmm. military families. There was church. There was chapel. There was all kinds of things going on on the military base. So we really had no need to go into the economy unless you wanted to shop and, and mingle with the, with the natives, so to speak. And I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and in school, I always joined the German-American clubs, where we had clubs with um, American students uh, at the high school, and also with the high school, the German high schools, the Hochschule, um, their students who were interested in, in mis- mixing and mingle with uh, Americans and learning more about um, life in America. And that's, that's pretty much, I was always an involved person. And I was always dealing with people from various countries, mm-hmm. nations, religions, and what have you, because that's what you have on a military base. You have a lot of diversity. A lot of diversity. Did you pick up any German along the way? I speak fluent German. Do you really? Yes. So much to the point that when I did come to WT in 67, um, in my freshman year, I thought that a crash course would have been German, right? Yeah. Because I speak it. Um, I took the course, and by the next semester when I signed up for the course, my instructor was asking me if I would like to do the German lab. And I said, well, I guess. I mean, you know, that's good. I understand the language. I'm very literate in German. And so he gave me the German labs, and he said it was because I didn't speak German with a Texas accent. Hmm. So German with a Texas accent is, (laughs) as I understand it, a very different kind of German. Right. Um, Okay. (laughs) And apparently so, because, I mean, I just... Well, yeah, yeah. you wouldn't have had a Texas accent anyway, because you were from Texas. So I... Right. But I really was from Texas. Oh, like originally, that's where your family was I was born in San Antonio. My parents were from Dallas. Okay. So tell me about WT during the 60s as a black student. Mm -hmm. I, I know that... You know, obviously you weren't your first, your brother had, had gone here, but like you were among some of the earliest African-American mm-hmm. students mm-hmm. to attend mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Was it, did it feel like that same kind of tension was, was that there or did it feel, you know, easier, harder? What was that like? Okay. First of all, being at Frankfurt American High School in a multicultural environment, it was largely predominantly white. Okay. Okay. So... Um, and then my dad actually worked and lived at Camp King. Camp King was a military intelligence base who was in the past a Nazi center that, you know, when the Nazis moved out, then the Americans took over and took over that base. Okay, so that was a very small concern. Okay. Um, and my family was the only African-American family on the base. Wow, all right. Okay, so inner WT. Mm-hmm. I was accustomed to being the only one, mm-hmm. so that wasn't an issue. What was the issue was the discrimination um, that I felt from you know not being able to join sororities or fraternities for my brother um, because they were closed to African Americans. Okay, um, so I would just navigate to places that were accepting, and you know ran for student senate, got it, um, and obviously in order to do that, I had to have a lot more people 
voting for me than just the African-Americans. You know, there were just about 53, 56 um, African-Americans on the campus, and most of them were in the football program okay. or the basketball program. And the females that were there uh, just going to school, just to be going to school, um, you can count them on two hands. Wow. So being the only one was was not an issue, just seeing that things um, were discriminatory. There was you know, a certain amount of racism. Um, I had uh, um, colleagues and peers who were African-American females who talked about being the only ones in the classroom and no one would sit around them. Wow. Um, and going through life like that. But once I got involved in campus activities, we had a, we had a group on campus called SDS, the Students for Democratic Society. Mm-hmm. And there were, there, were, there were protests. We had protests and marches down there. And I was participating in that. Um, I was kind of ambivalent about the the war effort because most of the students at that time were probably against the war in Vietnam. Well, at that time I had uh, my dad was sent to Vietnam. Okay. I had I was raised by my stepdad. My real father was in the Air Force. He was in Vietnam, and then when my brother left WT after two years to go and, and, and sow his oats in California and, and, and start a band. <laughs> uh, that lasted for about a year, and he was drafted, okay. so he went to Nam. So by the time it was my sophomore year, you know, my life was upside down. I, I guess it's, it's hard when you have family members there, and there are protests against the war effort. You may not want your family fighting in the war, but you also do want to support them. And that Absolutely. causes, that's, that's a different kind of tension. Yes, yes. Tell me about your career path. As you know, you, you kind of followed your brother to WT, but mm-hmm. what, was, what was your hope? What were you hoping to, uh, to study and, and get through? Well, I was hoping to stay in Germany, and I wanted to be a linguist. Okay. And then I wanted to be an oceanographer. And there's no water in Amarillo or... Or, or in Germany, really. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I thought I'd go to Florida. You know, I, I, might, I might as well. I had friends that left Germany, went to Florida. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to Florida and be an oceanographer. My mom wasn't having it because my dad was still career military, mm-hmm. and they knew that they would be, you know, whatever base they were going to be ne- at, to, at next would be three years, and then they'd move on. Well, as it was, I, I went to WT. I stayed at WT. My parents then went to Okinawa. So I was, you know, talk about fish out of water. Yeah. But it was, it was, I don't know. I, I really, I, I spent a lot of time with a lot of friends that were from various backgrounds. But I think that was because they got to know me better. Mm-hmm. Um, they were my classmates. And um, some of those people are still my friends to this day. What was your major at WT? My major was sociology. Why did you go that direction? I mean, that's pretty different from oceanography. Well, I felt like I was very interested in people, okay, places and things. And because I enjoy being around people, finding out about people, studying cultures and things of that sort, being immersed in various cultures, I, that's what I wanted to, to major in. If not fish, then people. Okay. <laughs> well, that, I guess that makes sense. Um, tell me... Tell me what your career path then ended up being after you, you know, concluded your education. My career path. I mean, I know there's a lot more education a, after WT too. Right, so. right. Was to get a job, and 
move over the hill, so to speak, to Amarillo. Because I was comfortable in Canyon. I was comfortable in Canyon because I was attached to the university. Mm -hmm. Um, Going to Amarillo when they were just closing the air base. Yeah. The fact that they had an air base, that was was kind of in my favor um, because that's what I was accustomed to, being on a base. But um, when they closed the air base and some of the things, the dynamics were changing in Amarillo, um, I was a little leery. By that time, I had married. And by the time I graduated, we had moved to Amarillo because of a job. And my first job was with Planned Parenthood. Okay. And with Planned Parenthood, um, after I got my degree, I was the health educator. Um, and so I was back in the dorms talking about you know birth control measures, mm-hmm. prevention, and things of that sort, and also in the schools. Um, couldn't do that this day. No. You know, even on the university campus, I couldn't peddle, peddle my pills in the dorms or talk about any alternatives or whatever. But back then, we could. That was in the 70s, right? Right. Yeah. Right. I want to ask about the state of, I guess, of, of race relations in Amarillo, you know, back in the 70s. I, I know that Amarillo at that time was more diverse probably than Canyon was, uh, but I wonder what that was like. Um, you know, somebody who moved to Amarillo from Canyon and was was kind of coming of age, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. starting a mm-hmm. career, doing all those mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Well, once I got over the culture shock of being in, in, in Canyon mm-hmm. um, and being so close to Amarillo, I, I knew what was going on in Amarillo. I knew what churches I wanted to belong to. Mm-hmm. I joined um, Johnson's Chapel, which is African Methodist right. Episcopal Church. Um, and there, um, that that was like a family. That was like family. And in working in the in the in the community, I learned that there were people that had gone away to school, moved back to Amarillo. Um, Iris Lawrence was one of the first persons oh, yeah. I met. And one of the things that was significant about um, our relationship was that Iris was really involved with the NAACP. I got involved with the NAACP. Um, she had also been. Um, would, would lend herself to be involved in test cases to see if she would be hired by certain for certain positions in Amarillo. She had her degree from St. Augustine College, okay. so she came back home. Um, and as a test case, she would apply for jobs to see if they would hire an African-American. Just to sort of like investigate to right, see what right. different companies for the do. NAACP. Okay. So they were ready to, you know, file lawsuits if they mm-hmm. were discriminatory. Because she had the qualifications right. that most applicants would have. Exactly. The only difference was She's color black. of her skin. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it was significant that she had a degree in order to do that just so that she would be Qualified, and she was she was applying for jobs that met her qualifications. Were they local or were they? They were all local. All over. Okay. They were all lo- they were all they were all local in Amarillo. All right. Um, clothing stores, um, not government entities, okay. but um, retail outlets and things of that sort. And um, and that would be the onus to to encourage others to go in apply um, if she was accepted in those places. And I thought I was I was really curious about that happening and saw it unfold. And, and what, what were some of the results of that? Do you remember? Um, she was she was successful. I would say most of the time, but the ones we were only interested in the ones that denied her. Right. So that gave us fodder to um, move forward. Were there more of those they, than you expected, or was it what? 
was expected? I mean, what, what did Amarillo look like during those Not days? really, because a lot of things were taken in consideration. Um, the type of organization that, that was what, well, what it was and, mm-hmm. and things of that sort. I know that as far as my getting a job in Amarillo, Coach Kerbel was very significant in helping me get a job um, even before I moved to Amarillo. And one of those reasons is because he had a lot of connections. Hmm. He knew a lot of people. A lot of people were supportive of the program at WT. We were D1 school. We were, we were very good in football. Mm-hmm. And we were excellent in, in basketball as well. So he knew, had a lot of contacts in Amarillo. And when he would send me out on these calls for um, jobs, and I think he sent me out on three, the first one I landed, and that was with the American Quarter Horse. Oh, okay. To put me at the American Quarter Horse. An agriculture-based organization, not typically known for its diversity, most likely right, in those right, days. Right, right, absolutely. And they knew that um, I had a lot of contacts on the campus, so they weren't going to deny me anything while I was there. I mean, they put me in a, in a, in a great department. I was in markings. I was hmm. putting the... The markings on the on the dog to match on the on the horses on the quarter horses to match the um, information that was gleaned from the owners. Okay, um, I enjoyed that drawing. I enjoyed yeah. that, but I was the only one except for Nancy Johnson, and Nancy Johnson worked in the break room. Hmm. Interesting. And she'd been there uh, thirty years. I mean, she'd been there forever. Um, so that was quite different. Tell me about the rest of your career because I know you ended up, you know, doing a lot of a lot of teaching. You've done a lot of writing. So, uh, tell me what happened. So you as it sort of evolved, you know, right. from out of there. So fast forward to PRPC. I went to work with PRPC as the regional alcohol and drug, drug coordinator. That's the Panhandle that, Regional Planning Commission. Yes, and that gave me access to the whole Panhandle. Okay. Because I was a regional coordinator for the upper twenty six counties of the Panhandle. Uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed going to all the towns talking about um, alcohol and drugs and then what we could do for prevention, what we could do for services. One of the pivotal points as I was working with them was we were, went, we were going to start a, an alcoholic recovery center in Amarillo that would, through PRPC, help the counties. That alcoholic recovery center required me to go to Hazelden, which is a re- world-renowned uh, recovery Center in Center City, Minnesota, okay. along with the county judge from Stratford and also the city manager, Nick Hammond from Amarillo. Okay. So there were four of us. We had to go there. And the only way we could get in t- to observe the program was to be treated like a patient so that everybody around us in there would not think we were spying on them. Yeah, it's so like an immersive right. sort of program. So we went in as patients. And Interesting. And it was... It was Eye-opening. How long did you have to sort of be We were there undercover? two weeks. Okay. We were there for two weeks. We were supposed to stay for a month because most people stayed a month or 28 days. Um, but we weren't patients. Yeah, we sure. were observers. And, and, and Hazleton is the, what, the reason it's world-renowned is Hazleton is the one that took over the Betty Ford Center. Okay. So you had all these affluent people from all over the world who would come to the United States to go to Hazleton. Hmm. So, I mean, it was just, and we were going to try to put that model in Amarillo. And pretty much we, we um, opened up the Panhandle Alcoholic Recovery Center out at the air base. And it was, it was, it was um, sponsored by PRPC. Planning Commission, but 
um, the various counties that wanted to send people to park would pay a fee. And it was through the fees from the counties, the district of counties, um, that helped contribute to that center. How long did that center operate? Because it's, it's probably it's not about still... probably about five or six years. Okay, five or six years. And it didn't. Is there a reason it didn't stay in operation or become right? It, you know, it lost. Like... It lost a lot of their funding from PRPC because okay. we opened it with with the funding from the counties and also grants. Okay. And it was hoped that more counties would pick it up and that it would become a part of Potter County as well. So we wanted Potter County to pick it up as well. You know, that's that's still a pretty unique career. Um, how did that evolve into teaching? It got to teaching because after PRPC, I went to work for a probation department. All right. As an adult probation officer for Potter Randall Armstrong County. So I'm still learning about the counties. Okay. After that, I went to Texans War on Drugs. That's a statewide organization. I represented not only PRPC, but I also rep- represented the SPAG area, which is Lubbock and the county surrounding Lubbock. Okay. Because I was in the schools, because I was going around and, and hosting the youth uh, leadership camps um, that were statewide for, for Texans War on Drugs, it gave me a, a huge amount of contacts in the school systems, in the, in the two areas, SPAG and PRPC, mm-hmm. and traveling around and getting my name out and getting the word out. It was actually um, Senator Till Bivens who gave me the, the first reception when I opened my office, having all the law enforcement people in to Embryo at First National Bank mm-hmm. um, saying that I'm going to be the drug czar for this area. Wow. What that did for me was everybody wanted me to come by and, and share with them how we were going to do pre- prevention programs, what model we were going to be using. Um, there was the, also the campaigns for Blue Ribbon Schools for the Red Ribbon Campaign was right. going on, and I had a big part in that. Um, Nancy Reagan was one of our spokespersons yeah. every year for our youth conferences, say no to drugs. So... At the end of my tenure with Texans War on Drugs, and it, and it ran out because the funding ran out, H. Ross Perot was one of our significant persons. As a matter of fact, he headquartered us in his building in Austin. Okay. Okay, so when he decided to run for, for office, you know, other programs. He other spent programs, all that money on exactly, his own campaign. Exactly. So Texans War on Drugs folded. I got a call immediately from WT to come there to teach. So I was recruited, hmm. and it was significant to me because I was always the one that was outspoken on campus. I mm-hmm. was always the one, though, that worked with committee in committees to alleviate some of the problems, the racial tensions, and mm-hmm. things of that sort on the campus. And that's what they recalled. They, there down, was still an institutional memory of you as a student right. enough to bring you back. As right, a, and I had worked on the the, the, the plan that, that merged WT with the Texas A&M system in, oh, okay. in 84 okay. um, as a community person um, because they had the, the, the in-house committees, but they also had people that were from the community to gauge what some of our um, alumni would think about the merger. Okay. Um, the significant part that, that I played was that uh, in interviewing people in, in the Amarillo area about WT's merger with A&M was what are, what are the give and takes? Mm-hmm. You know, what do we want to walk away with? And they said it, it would do us well, but we don't want to lose the WT 
symbol, right. identity, personality, everything. all so those things. So there yeah. we have West Texas okay. A&M. Okay. What were you, what were you hired to teach when WT brought you back? When WT brought me back, I was hired to teach sociology, criminal justice, and alcohol drugs for SES. It was like every part of your career then. Every <laughs> part of my career and it was it was amazing to me. Um, because you know, people down there, even you know, my other uh, professors and and peers, would say, you know, usually go with one discipline, yeah, your one focus, and but that was because I, they needed to give me more classes. I needed to have at least four classes, so I had two sociology classes, one criminal justice class, and one alcohol drug class. Three different departments. Yeah, exactly. That sounds right. So... so you talk about running around on campus, and my 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 SES classes were in the activity center, um, and my sociology classes and criminal justice classes were in Old Main, okay. largely. Um, and that was fine. I mean, I didn't know anything different. That's what I had, mm-hmm. and I did that for many many years, probably about three or four. But one of the turning points um, with WT was in. I joined WT in '95. In '90s, in February of '96, I had Rosa Parks on campus. Yeah, that was right before I went to WT. I didn't. Is I didn't right? go there until '97, but I remember when that happened. Oh my yeah. gosh! What was and that? The, like? the, and, and I got the call uh, about Miss um, Parks' world um, national tour, her national tour, mm-hmm. and um, they were looking at coming to Amarillo. And could I please? Put, put a committee together. Sure. With the contacts that I had in the majority community, in the minority community, all over, of course, of course I'd do that. And I did. I combined the forces. We had we had about six people on, on the committee. We worked very hard to get her into we – didn't, we didn't have to work hard. We just called people up in the schools. Uh, would you like Ms. Parks to come by? Because her main focus are youth, is youth. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to be in the schools. Um, I had to beg Barton still just to get her talked into going to WT because she said she her focus is school age kids mm-hmm. from K through twelve and not college students. Honestly, but that's that's my job. I work there. <laughs> if I'm gonna be working on this committee, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna need you to come to WT. Please come to WT. I will have students bust in from community schools from throughout the panhandle mm-hmm. solar on it we had people from we had bus loads from Tulia we had bus loads from Hereford we had bus loads from Dimmit we had bus loads from students from all over we'd already done Amarillo mm-hmm. uh, we were at Paladura we were at Tascosa and when we went to WT and there were you know hundreds and hundreds of students we had it in the activity center in the ballroom we had the overflow in the in the in the dance room um, it was it was fantastic. I had my civil rights teachers, uh, professors who were teaching history, but the civil rights era. I had them greet Miss um, um, Parks and also uh, present to her and and all the people, you know, their findings about the civil yeah. rights. I mean, uh, we were friends for we were tied for life. What what an amazing tied for opportunity. Life. What was she like? Oh gosh, she's a very very humble person. Mm-hmm. Um, very direct. I mean, she she knows exactly what she wants and what she wants done. Mm-hmm. And she has, uh, you know, she comes with an entourage, and her entourage are, are performers, 
um, people who um, work with events planning and things of that sort, okay. who take care of all the tactical stuff. She has her her security, and we had Lisa Cherry, who is yeah, then with yeah. the police department. She was on loan to us for three days. Okay, um, and it was it was just marvelous. It was marvelous working with her, and 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 her shows are two hours long. Uh, does she talk for two hours? No, she talks for about 20 minutes. But people that are in her entourage that I said were performers, they put on one-act plays. They put on 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 uh, poetry readings. They do all kinds of things to entertain. With her being there, we had bands, we had choirs, we had you know people that wanted to participate, wanted to be on stage with her. Um, Kel Seliger was the mm-hmm. was the mayor at that time. It was just a wonderful, wonderful event. Um, but at WT, the the talk around town is, you know, Claudia's been here two semesters. What is she going to do next? Yeah, it's hard to follow up Rosa Parks. You set the bar too high. <laughs> Tell me, um, one of the things that I've appreciated about your career is that you've, you've also written some books. And one of the books that, that really was most fascinating to me was your um, African Americans in Amarillo book, um, which I have drawn on for a number of of different projects, you know, just to have the history. And I, I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about the the process of researching that and writing that and maybe why it was necessary to do it. We had the opportunity um, as professors at WT to go to several conferences. And at every conference, you would have publishers there wanting to you know, do textbooks, mm-hmm. wanting to do books um, authored by um, professors and, and things of that sort. And my co-author, Dr. Jean Stunts, um, had gone to such a meeting, and um, well, uh, the publishers from Arcadia Press were there. And, and Arcadia they, Press is one of those, in, in case my listeners don't know that, like they, they their focus is telling historical stories about different cities, different regions, you absolutely, know, all over there the are state, hundreds all over the of States. stories. Absolutely, um, and and wanted us to use their model, their book, mm-hmm. to um, do something about African Americans in Amarillo. Um, working very closely with with um, Jean Stunts because she was a colleague. Um, she asked me, "How could we do that? Would I be interested in doing that?" Um, and I said, "Well, I don't know. I don't know everybody in Amarillo, but I can certainly contact people from the various churches." Because at that time, you know, the the black church is the community. Yeah, that's where the history is. Right, and that's where the families are. And so we sent notices out to all of the churches, and there were like 21 different churches to um, survey their congregation to see if anybody would be interested in sitting for an interview to tell us their oral histories. Well, we didn't have a lot of people that were interested at the very beginning, but as we interviewed people and people were sharing what they had done um, and what we were asking them and the pictures that we wanted to see of their families and things of that sort, and the fact that we weren't keeping the pictures, we would we would scan them right. and, and give them back to them immediately. And, you know, they would bring us crumpled up paper and stuff like this to just to talk about uh, their families that were here during certain eras in Amarillo. And it was just a labor of love. It was so fascinating with the stories were never ending, mm-hmm. um, and as soon as the book was out and and, and people were, were were getting it in Amarillo, um, it was immediately. Well, when are you going to do the next one? 
to include other family members that they may have left out, uh, more pictures that they've been able to find mm-hmm. over, through the through the process, and and things of that sort. So there was a lot of interest in book two. What did I mean? Because you didn't grow up here as a child. What did you learn about? the community and, you know, the history of black residents in Amarillo? Like, what are some of the things that, that maybe stood out to you as you wrote that book? Um, that the first member in Amarillo, um, along with Bones Hooks, was Jerry Calloway. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Calloway got to Amarillo um, because he was brought in with a white family, which he was working with the family. He lived here um, as the only African-American for a long, long time. Um, taken care of by this family, you know, and, and working for them. And when Amarillo started to grow, because Jerry had been the first, mm-hmm. he was like the protector of the of the of the families, especially the women who worked in homes as domestics, right? And had to walk through town and got jeered by Ku Klux Klansmen or or other white men, you know, who would who would harass them. But people um, knew Jerry. But people knew Jerry, and Jerry, you know, carried a gun, carried a rifle. Hmm. They they knew his temperament, and they knew that he was protected by this by this pioneer family. Hmm. That was significant. The whole life of Bones Hooks was just fascinating to me. How he worked, um, being from South Texas, how he came into this area um, to work with the ranchers in breaking horses, uh, breaking Broncos. And he was good at it. And he, he started doing that at the age of 12, Yeah, you know, and he was just riding along, you know, up here. And, and then the ranchers learned who he was, um, and asked for him by name. Yeah. He had the respect of the ranchers. He was so absolutely, good at his job. Absolutely. He was that good at his job and he was dependable. And with his friends, and 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 people that he worked with on these various ranchers, when they were in the very beginnings of Amarillo, he wanted a plot of land to where he could help build um, and have black people come up here and live in Amarillo. Um, he was given the plot of land um, early on by the Bivens family. Uh, he built first in the Flats area mm-hmm. around Third Street and Polk Street, which is just. Kind of northwest of downtown now, right. I guess. Right by Muir Streets, mm-hmm. um, built up that area, and then later on, um, taught, went back to his financiers mm-hmm. and 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 got more money and more support and more land to build in the North Heights area. And Bones Hooks, I know, was recently inducted into the uh, the National. Cowboys Hall of Fame. I'm not sure what the yes, actual yes, name is. Yes, in, in, in Oklahoma. Um, yeah, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and honored for his contributions, you know, as a cowboy, which I, I think is probably a long time coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he ended up being so influential, even outside of that sphere here absolutely, in Amarillo. Absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of the documents uh, from that time helped start the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. Right. I wanted to to kind of close up this section, um, seeing how you have lived here, you know, six to, since the sixties. Um, you've been working in so many different parts of Amarillo. You know, looking back to the challenges there during the civil rights era, and you know, here we are, almost fifty years later, well, more than fifty years later. Has has the city grown in positive ways? Have have things changed? 
Um, or are there still some some steps that we need to to go further? I think there's still some steps that we can go further because I know that a lot of the families have experienced their loved ones, their younger uh, people in the family moving away from Amarillo. Mm-hmm. I have so many families telling me that, you know, when I retire, I'm going to move to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I'm going to move to Houston. I'm going to be, be around my grandchildren because they haven't been able to find jobs here in Amarillo as they will as they have in other parts of Texas. So, um, um, is that an you, economic story or is that a racism story or is it a combination of both of those? I think it'd be a combination of both of those because I, I, when you ask me, um, do we still have far to go? Um, I think we still have a lot of work to do in the areas of having, um, jobs, sustainable jobs that will, that will help families, you know, that you don't have to work two and three and four jobs yeah. just to, you know, pay rent. Or, or keep a mortgage or something like that, so that those so that the professional jobs are more limited and and these are are things that are needed to sustain families. That's why they move. Mm-hmm. That's why they move away for for jobs. And it's known that Amarillo, the the the, the black population is still around four percent. Yeah, it hasn't really grown. No, is that because so many young people leave? I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, and even even when I talk to friends of mine who are from Amarillo, retiring in other places, you know, I'm always saying, "Are you come back to Amarillo? Yeah. Come back to Amarillo." They're not interested. Mm. What can we do to improve that? Does it does it take some sort of intentional steps to make Amarillo a place you know, where people it, will want to retire, where young people will want to stay? Jason, I think it it's important to take intentional steps and people don't want to come to an area where they don't feel that they have a voice Mm -hmm. Uh, be that in government be that the way that we run the economy be that um, the way that our schools are Um, we're having white flight right now yeah Uh, when we hear that our our aisd is over 50 percent hispanic some of the whites are leaving the school district. You know, we have a proliferation of, of families sending their kids to Happy, to Bushland, to mm-hmm. Tulia um, to go to school. Yeah, we have some issues here that we really need to deal with. Representation and a voice is almost everything. And that's that's representation at all levels, too. I mean, you, you have to see people in the professional jobs. You have to see people teaching at WT or teaching in AISD that, that look like you and that come from similar backgrounds. Absolutely. And so that's, that's not just a, uh, like, like that's, that's almost a generational project in where, in which you have to hire people, you know, uh, with, with diversity in mind, you have to hire people from all different parts of, of the neighborhood, parts of the city. Absolutely. And I think that, I think it's a good thing that we have Amazon coming in with their warehouse. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good thing that, Sharpened Edge is sharpened iron. Sharp, sharpened Iron Studios is going to be hiring in huge numbers at some point. I think that's all well and good. Um, enticing people to come back to Amarillo, um, I think it, it can be done. It can be done, but there has to be a concentrated effort to do that. One of the things I wanted to ask, and and I, I thought of this when you're talking about you know your role teaching at WT, is that. I imagine when you were attending there as a student, you didn't see a lot of faculty members who were black. Um, and and if you think that, you know, in the 90s, someone like yourself being in a teaching position, if that had an influence 
on your students? And, and if you sort of felt maybe the weight of that. Mm-hmm. I absolutely did. Um, it was important for me to be on that campus because I gave a different perspective. Um, and it, it wasn't always that it was a different perspective in the subject matter that I taught, but just the way I was perceived mm-hmm. as an instructor there. And working with students, um, I would say on day one, you know, I'm probably the first African-American that you've had in the, in the classroom, mm-hmm. bar none. And, and the overwhelming response was, yeah, I've never had an African-American teacher. That's, that's one of the reasons I'm t- I took the class. I was curious. And the second reason is, you know, I, I wanted to see how you taught. The third reason it was you were highly recommended by friends of mine. Sure. You know, so I felt good about that. Um, I know other African-American instructors there that did not have um, that same response. Hmm. Um, Students maybe did not take their classes for that reason or, or tried to. Or they took their classes and I don't, I wouldn't say resented, but just through their evaluations hmm. um, were very, very negative and about some things that even if I was called on it, I would want to discuss it with my dean or my associate dean as to why the evaluation was and not not just accept it. I mean, I've been called anything from a racist to, well, yeah, she's okay in the same class. And mm-hmm. I, I know exactly what students said what, even though it's anonymous, because of their feedback in class. Yeah. I would always... And I would just speak up for myself um, about in, in, in those, at those times um, concerning those recommendations. And I said, but, but they'll come back and take the class again because they want to make a good grade. You know, so you have to weigh everything. Mm-hmm. It's never about, well, she didn't like me because all my students were white, you know, for the most part. So it wasn't ever about that. And I would confront them on that. Uh, at the very beginning to say it's not because of what you think I think about you as a person I just want you to be productive Mm -hmm. for the last few weeks of the year Hey Amarillo is using this space for a special nonprofit highlight sponsored by SKP Creative this week's nonprofit is the High Plains Food Bank which provides aid to the top 29 counties in the Texas Panhandle working with nearly 200 agencies from Churches to soup kitchens to shelters. One in six local residents and one in five kids face food insecurity. But the food bank can provide four meals of food for every dollar you donate. So when I want to give to a local organization that offers the most charitable bang for my buck, I almost always end up choosing High Plains Food Bank. This week, December 6 through 10, is the organization's annual Together We Can food drive. So look for ways to make a donation to High Plains Food Bank at any United store or visit hpfb.org. Thanks again to SKP Creative for sponsoring. Okay, I'm back with Claudia Stewart. Claudia, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon, which I know you're aware of. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes the fossils of aquatic animals that used to live here in the Panhandle including an eight-foot-long amphibian Metaposaurus, um, which would be stunning to see an eight-foot-long amphibian 
Yeah, or, anywhere. you know, an ocean in the Panhandle <laughs> anyway. Uh, you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, uh, the first question, and I've been asking this of all my guests, is what's one thing the pandemic and the past 18 months have revealed to you about local people? I think what it's revealed to me about local people is that um, we tend to think about ourselves when we really should be thinking about what our actions' impact is on others. Hmm. Why has that become clear during the past few months? It's it's become clear to me because there are so many people who um, do not want to follow the science mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason, even when it's to help people in their own families. We have uh, intergenerational homes. Um, if it's not for yourself, what about your grandparents sure. that are living with you? Sure. What about your children that are living with you um, that can be impacted by your decisions? What does this area have too much of? It's a very conservative area. Mm-hmm. It's also in the Bible Belt. It is, by and large, uh, a very Christian atmosphere, um, family values. However, I don't think those family values stretch beyond a person's close circle. Okay. Um, and I had that just by their actions. I've worked with uh, retail outlets that have called me in to consult on discrimination or racism. Why is it that a, a, a black patron entering a store is followed by the clerks where another person can walk freely? Why is makeup locked up at the counter and you have to ask for a key to open it up? Uh, when you when you pose these types of things to these organizations, so they always want to put the blame on somebody else mm-hmm. when it's a, a policy that you see in your face right here in Amarillo. So breaking down those kinds of barriers, if it was Christian, we might be acting differently. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think that... That's something that we don't ask enough questions about is as much as matters of faith and the teachings of Jesus or the traditions of Christianity are said to be important here. They're not so important that they have put a damper on that sort of racist thinking um, or, or the white supremacist kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of people just assume, oh, well, you know, this is what Christians think not realizing that there are a whole lot of Christians in Amarillo who maybe attend black churches or come mm-hmm. from a different background mm-hmm. that are like on a very different side of, of a lot of those issues. It's, it's, we're all drawing from the same scriptural source, but it's, it's causing different actions and different responses. Right. What does this area not have enough of? We don't have enough black people. Okay. <laughs> we we've got we've got to move 4% off of that four percent right four percent is not enough. So I'd like to see um, more uh, African Americans move into this area, and the fact that with various agencies and companies that I've worked for, the only standard that they've had as far as their black employees is, well, if we only have four percent, that's still the the average for Amarillo. So. We're keeping up with the standard that's already set. That's what we had. I said, no, we, we need to, you know, increase that. And we're not going to increase it being with the mindset that we need to keep it at 4%. Yeah, to, to only stay at that level is not a way to increase it. And I would wonder if those same employers have the same number of Hispanic employees 
you know, to match that percentage in Amarillo, which is much, much higher. Mm -hmm. Maybe not. Maybe so. I don't know. Oh, I think I think they'd like to keep that around 12 percent. But that's not possible because a lot of a lot of agencies, the same stores and and retail outlets and companies that I'm talking about, keeping the black population, the black patron or customer or not customer, but employee at 4 percent. Um, is looking at twelve percent for Hispanics. Yeah, so that's not so, not not anywhere close to that percentage locally. How do you describe Amarillo or Canyon to people outside this area? I think Amarillo is on the move. I think that uh, we've had a lot going on um, as far as economically is concerned in the last ten years than we've had in the in the forty years that I've been here. And that and that's 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 good because when we closed the base, we were at a lull. Yeah, absolutely. And we were going backwards, and now I think we're we're on the move. Does that make you hopeful? Oh, absolutely. Future? I think it'll bring in more people, and when you bring in more people, I think you're going to be bringing in more African Americans when they can get a good, decent paying job. Okay. Uh, we talked about Jerry Calloway. We talked about Bones Hooks. I, I wonder if you have a favorite character or individual in local history, somebody that you think about all the time. Maybe it's one of those two guys. I think it would be Bones Hooks. Mm-hmm. I think it would be Bones Hooks. Uh, he did a lot. It's but hard to find a more influential person. Absolutely. White or black in Amarillo. Absolutely. And we've had people come down through the ages. Um, Charles Warford, for yeah. one, uh, who had the, the YMCA named after him. Um, very influential. He was a, a mortician. Mm-hmm. He was liked and respected by the total community of Amarillo. Um he was a dear friend of mine. He talked often about Bones Hooks mm-hmm. and the fact that he was a part of the dog, the doggy club. Yeah, that's right. That he had, um, so he benefited from knowing about Bones Hooks. So he was one of the the little boys that Bones Hooks sort of took under his wing. He was, he was, and he lived to tell about it. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite local restaurant? I think I'd have to say Abuelos. Okay. I love Mexican food, and it's always good. Um, they have curved service. Mm-hmm. Um, takeout is fast, so I, I kind of like that. Abuelos is an interesting story to me because it's, you know, it's a it's a much larger regional chain, but it actually started in Amarillo. Like its first store um, was an Amarillo location, and you know, I I haven't heard enough about that history apart from that, but. It is um, in other locations. I wasn't there, yeah, aware there, of that. Yeah, there are abuelos all over the Southwest. Oh wow! Um, but the very first one started here, uh, and so I, I don't know much about its history, but uh, mm-hmm. that's always been interesting to me. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Probably the Palace. Okay, it's close. It's close. Do you have a, a specific one that you like to frequent? The Palace and Summit. Okay, that's a good location. Mm-hmm. Always a lot going on there. Always a lot going on. Okay. Good vibes. Good vibes. All right. Speaking of good vibes, when was the last time you visited the Big Texan? Oh, my birthday. We we do Big Texan or Saltgrass, alternate years. I, I, I like Big Texan. We just had my birthday in August, and I was there. Do you get the free prime rib on your birthday? Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. I love it. Okay. Um, that's good. I, I'm glad to know that there's a, a local who is uh, is pretty regular in visiting the Big Texan. Oh, and, it's not and, my, the and case. my family. Oh, and I, I take them there at least once a year. Okay. Um, and when people are visiting, I encourage them to go there as well. Yeah, of course. All right. So, Claudia, that 
concludes the eight straight questions, I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing that you would want local people to know about or to experience? I would like local people to endorse and experience and acknowledge women's rights to choose. Okay. That's a big, a big conversation lately, especially here in the state of Texas. It is, and that's a whole nother hour. <laughs> <laughs> Well, coming from somebody who was in the thick of that, I imagine in the '70s, and has you know probably spent a career immersed in those issues, um, I bet we could do another hour on that. So I guess we can leave it at you're that. You're on. You're on. All right. Okay. Thank you, Jason. Claudia for Stewart. Thank me. you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Claudia for the interview, and thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode. Also to my sponsors, SKP Creative, Shimon Dental, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. If you're looking for a place for end-of-year giving, consider High Plains Food Bank online at hpfb.org. As usual, this podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you, so thank you for listening, and the people who support it financially through patreon.com slash Hamarello. Hamarello's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Chris Zelda, Barbara and Jim Witten, Jess Heredia, Josh Wood, Corey Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, and Patrick Burns. This has been episode 226. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.